Welcome to Bench Talk, the week in science. My name is Dave Robinson. And I'm Ashley Best. You're listening to WFMP Louisville, 106.5 FM. This show's about bringing science to the people. We'll be bringing you weekly updates on new research that is important to all of us and celebrating evidence-based policy. We've scoured the library stacks for interesting articles, climbed the hill to stay informed on science policy, and performed some experiments of our own. We're here as a conduit of all things science. So, let's get started. Hey, Dave here, and Happy New Year's to all of you. I know it's pretty late to be still wishing people Happy New Year's, but 2019 just went by way fast. I can't believe it's 2020 already. Well, to start this show off, we're going to be hearing from Professor Scott Miller about what we should expect to see in the night sky during the month of January 2020. And then I'm going to continue with the top 50 science stories of 2019. But first, take it away, Professor Miller. Scott here. With the new year, there are more than a few things to see in the night skies of January. Constellations, a bright planet, and a conjunction between that planet and the crescent moon later in the month top the list. So I steel myself against the colder temperatures and take a walk outside shortly after dark. Since we are only a couple weeks following the date of the shortest amount of daylight, the winter solstice back on December 21st, darkness comes early at this time of the year. The colder temperatures can also help to remove some of the moisture from the air, making the stars seem to pop against the blackness of the night sky. Scanning the sky, I can quickly find one of my favorite targets, the Big Dipper. The Big Dipper is not a constellation, but is made of seven of the brighter stars of a constellation known as Ursa Major, Latin for the Big Bear. Unfortunately, about the only part of the Dipper that is easy to spot are the two stars to make up the front of the bowl of the dipper, at least in the early evening skies. But that still works because these two stars allow me to find the north star, Polaris, to establish the direction north. That then lets me know my directions in the night sky. Start with the star closest to the horizon and draw a line from it to the top star making the lip of the front of the bowl. Extend that line until another star is reached. That star is Polaris a star that does not seem to move throughout the night or throughout the year. Here at my house, the skies are dark enough to see a dim group of stars curving back down toward the direction of the horizon and the bowl of the Big Dipper. Seven stars in all, including Polaris, make up the Little Dipper. Unless the skies are quite dark, that is, not too light polluted, it may only be possible to pick up Polaris and the two stars that make up the front of the bowl of the Little Dipper. This makes a good gauge for testing the darkness of skies. West and south and east are generally the location of planets in the night sky. This past fall, there were more than a few. Now only one is found in our early evening sky, the planet Venus. Located low in the southwestern sky, it is the brightest object in that part of the sky, making it pretty easy to pick up. Early in the month, one might glimpse Venus before dark in the southwestern sky and the moon over in the east. As the month continues, the moon rises later and later in the evening, then early in the morning, while Venus holds steady. By the 27th and 28th of the month, the moon will reappear and coast past Venus, making for a pretty sight as darkness comes. In the southeast, an easily found pattern of stars can be seen. 
The bright pattern of Orion the Hunter is well above the horizon in the evening skies of January. Throughout the rest of winter and on into spring, he will be seen to march across the southern sky before disappearing altogether later in the spring. What stands out most for many people is a line of three stars. Each are quite bright, and a line of stars close together is something not easily visible in the sky. These three stars are a belt worn at the waist of Orion. A dimmer line of stars just south of the belt mark a sword tucked there. 10 by 50 binoculars or a small telescope will reveal the middle star is a gas cloud called the Orion Nebula. Here new stars are forming, and their output causes the surrounding gas of glow like a neon sign. To finish up Orion, two bright stars north of the belt mark his shoulders. Two bright stars south of the belt mark his knees. If the skies are dark, that is, not too light polluted, a small grouping of three stars midway between and up from the shoulder stars marks his head. Collectively, not too difficult to see a human figure there among those stars. Another reason I like to find Orion is that, like the Big Dipper, combinations of stars in Orion lead to other stars in other constellations. This is particularly true about the belt stars. A line extended beyond the belt stars up and to the west lead to Aldebaran. This star is the brightest in the constellation known as Taurus the Bull. Taurus is another constellation that is somewhat easy to picture, at least as far as his face and head. Aldebaran is pictured as one of his eyes. Near to Aldebaran can be seen a V-shaped group of stars with Aldebaran at the end of one of the arms of the V. The V-shaped pattern of stars is a cluster of stars traveling together in space called the Hyades Star Cluster. Aldebaran happens to lie along the line toward that cluster, but isn't part of it. Aldebaran is closer to Earth, so this gives sort of a 3D effect with a little imagination. A bit west of the Hyades is a tighter grouping of stars called the Pleiades. They are also traveling together as a group in our galaxy and are farther from us than the Hyades, further allowing that 3D imagination thing to work. They also mark the shoulder of Taurus. If the line of stars marking each arm of the V is extended, two more relatively bright stars are reached, marking the tips of the horns of Taurus, so basically we see the front half of the bull. As prominent as Orion and Taurus are, and located next to each other in the sky, the ancient Greeks and Romans did not seem to create a story involving both. It would seem kind of natural, one being a hunter, the other the hunted, maybe a task for modern storytellers. By now, enough time may have passed to put the belt stars back to the work to help find another bright star. Traveling southeast along the belt stars, we arrive at Sirius, the brightest star in our skies. Sirius is also the brightest star in Canis Major, Latin for the Big Dog. To see more of this constellation requires a bit later stay in the night skies, or perhaps a revisit later in the evening after heading in to warm up. The shoulder stars of Orion can also be used to find a bright star. A line from the dimmer Bellatrix to the brighter Betelgeuse, continuing eastward, leads to Procyon. Procyon is the brightest star in a small constellation known as Canis Minor, the small dog. By small, I mean this star and one other somewhat dimmer star are, for the most part, what make up this constellation. Farther over in the eastern sky are a pair of stars of about the same brightness. These are the stars Castor and Pollux. They make up the heads of the brothers collectively called Gemini the Twins. 
Castor and Pollux are not only the names of the stars, but the names of each of the twins. A line of stars stretching back in the direction of Orion mark their bodies. A good star map can help with this. Constellations, a bright planet, and a pretty conjunction of the two brightest nighttime objects, all visible to the unaided eye, and the only precaution would be to dress for the weather. Could be lots of fun. Thanks, Scott. Well, if you heard our show last week, you heard the first 27 of the 50 top science stories of 2019, as determined by Discover Magazine. And you've had a week now. Have you figured out what the top story is or what the top five stories of the year were? Anyway, the 27th top story was about the huge measles outbreak that rocked the world last year. Are you ready for science story number 26? 26. The discovery of a new type of dementia in people who are 85 years of age or older. Now, this new disease helps explain why a lot of older people who display the signs of dementia, they're forgetful, they can't think straight, but they don't actually appear to have Alzheimer's disease. This new dementia is called L-A-T-E, late. That stands for Limbic Predominant Age-Related TTP43 Encephalopathy. Now, like Alzheimer's disease, LATE results in the buildup of protein deposits in the brain, but the kind of protein that builds up in the brain is different than what you find in Alzheimer's patients. Number 25 has to do with physics. It's been more than 100 years since physicists have learned that electrons that are orbiting around the nucleus of an atom is doing so in discrete orbits at discrete energy levels. The original idea put forward by Niels Bohr was that electrons could shift from one discrete energy level or orbit to another, but that they really didn't linger around between two distinct orbits. But all that changed this year when physicists were measuring the photons released or absorbed when electrons associated with artificial atoms changed their orbitals. They observed smooth, continuous transitions from one energy level to another. This indicates that Niels Bohr might have been wrong about these quantum jumps being so abrupt and discrete. Maybe it's a continuous transition. Number 24, some hits and misses from the new InSight probe that has successfully landed on Mars. InSight landed on Mars in November of 2018, and some of the equipment on the probe is working perfectly well, including one that monitors the weather on Mars and another that can detect Mars quakes. In fact, check out our Bench Talk episode of May 20th, 2019, if you want to hear the first actual Mars quake ever recorded. But another instrument, this one was designed to measure the planet's internal temperature, is having some trouble. It was supposed to dig 16 feet down into the Martian surface and then place its thermometers down there, but instead, it was only able to dig down about one foot. It turns out that the InSight probe landed on really hard rock, and the drill is just having a difficult time getting down through all that rock. Right now, it's only one foot deep instead of 16, but NASA scientists think that they might have overcome the problem, though. They have recently concocted a remedy that allows it to drill one more inch per week so maybe they can slowly get that thermometer deeper into Mars. Number 23. New human fossils were found this year. 
One fossil is of a human skull thought to be 210,000 years old. In Israel last year, they found a partial human jaw that appeared to be 180 to 190,000 years old. And in China, a 120,000-year-old human fossil was found. And this ends up challenging the notion that humans didn't leave Africa until 60,000 years ago. Apparently, people migrated out of Africa a lot earlier than 60,000 years ago, since this Chinese fossil is twice that age. Number 22, a new early warning system for predicting volcano eruptions is now in place. There are more than 150 potentially active volcanoes in the United States and its territories, and more than a third of them are listed as exhibiting high or very high threats of actually erupting in the future. Well, there's a new law requiring the government to monitor these 57 volcanoes by placing instruments near each potential volcano. These instruments can measure earthquakes, ground uplift, and gas emissions. The idea here is to predict future eruptions early enough so that people who live near it can be moved out of the way before they get hurt. Number 21, NASA's twin study. The question here is, what is the effect of space travel on the body? What results from the extra radiation, the weightlessness, the interrupted day-night periods, and the artificial food that the human body experiences when it's in outer space? Well, NASA wants to know this because they are planning on sending people on long-range trips to both the Moon and Mars. And, you know, these sort of effects would be difficult to determine because it's challenging to find a good baseline to compare the astronaut to. But it turns out that there is a pair of identical twins who are both trained as astronauts. It's Mark and Scott Kelly. Now, Scott Kelly spent a year on the International Space Station from 2015 to 2016, while his identical twin brother, Mark Kelly, stayed on the ground. You might have seen Mark Kelly in the news because his wife is former U.S. Representative Gabby Giffords, who was shot and suffered serious brain injury in an assassination attempt in my hometown, Tucson, Arizona, back in 2011. Mark Kelly is currently running for the office of U.S. Senator in Arizona. He's running as a Democrat, vying against the current replacement for the deceased John McCain. It's Republican Martha McSally. Now, this isn't a perfect experiment because Mark Kelly has been an astronaut on four different flights of the space shuttle, so he did do some time in space himself, but his last flight was in 2011. Anyway, they did find some differences in these two twins after one of them spent a year in space. Space flight appeared to alter the DNA some. It altered gene expression, meaning transcription levels, in the brother who was aloft for a year. And it also changed his microbiome, his bacteria. What's interesting is that most of these alterations due to spaceflight disappeared within a few months after Scott Kelly returned to Earth. But apparently, there are some challenges facing astronauts who might spend years in space. Radiation is an issue. The lack of gravity. They have distortions in their vision. They're very sensitive to smells. And of course, you can imagine feelings of isolation. Number 20 of the top 50 science stories of 2019. This year, a detailed description of the largest known Tyrannosaurus rex was published. 
The fossil was discovered in Canada back in 1991, but it took this long to actually excavate it and reconstruct the fossil. Now, it's estimated that this T-Rex weighed almost 20,000 pounds and was 43 feet in length. Now, if you've ever been lucky enough to visit the Field Museum in Chicago and you've seen the T-Rex on display there, she's called Sue. And Sue is definitely a big T-Rex. But this new one called Scotty, for the discoverer of it, it's a couple feet taller and 800 pounds heavier. Another difference between Sue and Scotty, whereas Sue is estimated to have been only 28 years old when she died, Scotty is thought to have been more than 30 years old. That's pretty old for a Tyrannosaurus. And it appears that Scotty had a pretty rough 30 years, too. He sports a broken rib, a nasty infection of the jaw, and a massive compression injury to its tail, possibly being bitten on the tail by some other dinosaur. Or maybe it was Godzilla. I saw that in a movie one time. Number 19 is about archaeology. The buried ruins of a 9,000-year-old city called Matzah was uncovered this year. The city is located in what is now called Israel, situated about three miles away from Jerusalem. It covers an 80-acre site and is thought to have been the home of thousands of people. Now, they first discovered the ruins in 2015 when there was a highway being constructed and the Israeli government decided to excavate the entire area since it was all slated for large-scale development. They've uncovered organized streets and alleys, private homes, workshops, and public halls. Variation in sizes of the homes suggests that there were formal leaders and socioeconomic stratification. There's also plenty of ancient art found in Matzah, including handcrafted jewelry, shells from the Red Sea, and volcanic glass from what is now called Turkey. Number 18, DNA editing using CRISPR technology. Right now, there are some 37 million people worldwide infected with the HIV virus that causes AIDS. Now, this virus is difficult to fight because when it infects the body, the viral DNA takes up residence in the DNA of the human host in places like the lymph nodes, the spleen, the liver, lungs, and brain. Currently, the best treatment for HIV is antiretroviral therapy called ART, ART. But even with ART, you don't actually rid the body of the viral DNA that integrated itself into the host. But this year, researchers at Temple University successfully rid the bodies of humanized mice that were infected with HIV. And they were using a modified art technique that uses nanoparticles that persist in the body longer. This nanoparticle technique appeared to prevent 99% of HIV viral replication. On top of that, the researchers used a fairly new gene editing technique called CRISPR to actually remove, that is cut out, the HIV DNA from the infected mice. If you want to know more about the CRISPR technique, check out our old episode, Bench Talk, The Week in Science, episode from July 15th, 2019. It's somewhere near the middle of that broadcast. Turns out they eliminated all traces of HIV in more than 30% of the mice. That's truly amazing. Next, they want to try these techniques on non-human primates and then try it on people. Number 17, 
archaeologists uncovered the bones of an ancient human who, although it belongs to the same genus as us, Homo, it doesn't belong to any of the other species thought of as human relatives. The bones and teeth they uncovered were in a cave on an island in the Philippines and date to around 50,000 years ago. What's even more perplexing is that this island has never been connected to any other landmass. So whoever came to it 50,000 years ago, they had to have floated there somehow. Number 16. Quantum computing. <laughs> I can't say I really understand how quantum computing actually works. I'm sorry. All I can say is that it's a different approach than using traditional computers like we're using. In October, Google announced that they had built a quantum computer for performing a specific calculation in a much faster time than could be done by a regular computer. Whereas it would have taken a regular supercomputer 10,000 years to make this calculation, how long did it take Google's quantum computer? 200 seconds. After this announcement, a competitor, IBM, claimed that their improved supercomputer could have made that calculation in only 2.5 days, but that's still a lot longer than 200 seconds. So as this research continues, the computing power of quantum chips is growing exponentially. Big things are predicted to come from quantum computing. And this appears to be another major milestone for the Google company. If you'd like to hear more about the history of Google, check out our Bench Talk story from October 1st, 2018. It's on our webpage. Number 15. Here's a provocative title of a research article for you. It was published in Scientific Reports in February of 2019. It's called Human Mind Control of Rat Cyborg's Continuous Locomotion with wireless brain-to-brain -brain interface. Whoa, that does sound like a science fiction story, doesn't it? Well, this article brings two technologies together, brain-to-brain -to -brain interfaces and rat cyborgs. Here's how it works. A human is wearing an EEG around their head, and it measures brainwave pattern, but that signal is transferred to a computer interface then the computer translates that signal into some instructions and wirelessly beams that information to a brain-machine interface that is attached to the brain of a rat. The rat responds to the instruction it receives and actually changes their behavior in response to them. With this kind of technique, researchers were able to control the mind of the test rat to get it to smoothly navigate a maze. Whew. I actually don't know how to respond to that one. Number 14 has to do with Mars again. This time, it's the Mars rover called Opportunity. It went silent in February last year. This six-wheeled rover was originally intended to wander the Martian surface for only three months, but instead it lasted for 15 years. Now, Opportunity helped researchers realize that there used to be water on Mars, and it also helped them learn how to better drive rovers on planets remotely. This could be very helpful on future explorations of planets and moons and asteroids, things like that. Number 13. Neuroscientists at Yale University this year were able to keep pig brains alive in vitro for four hours after the animals were killed. The brains were from pigs killed at a local butchering company, 
and immediately pumped a solution of synthetic nutrients through the brains to keep them alive. The brain cells retained their cellular functioning for four hours. In terms of the ethical questions associated with this kind of research, they found that there was no evidence of higher-order brain activity or any indication that the brains could perceive their environment or experience sensations. The researchers insist that if they had detected any electrical signals associated with consciousness, the researchers would have shut down the experiment, pulled the plug. These researchers hope that this kind of research might lead to new ways to deal with brain trauma in the future due to things like heart attacks or strokes. Number 12 is about the next generation of spacecraft that NASA will be using now that the space shuttle program has been ended. We've been relying on the Russian Soyuz spacecraft to transport astronauts and supplies to and from the International Space Station since 2011, following the final space shuttle flight. But now Elon Musk's SpaceX company is one way that our off-planet transportation needs in the future will be covered, rather than the Russian Soyuz spacecraft. But the SpaceX program has not been going smoothly. The unmanned SpaceX Dragon craft has successfully taken supplies to the space station, but during a ground test in April, a leak in the capsule caused the entire thing to explode, completely destroying it. Now SpaceX has built a new capsule, and the plan is to launch it with no people aboard no later than January 11, 2020. The other company that is competing for the ability to carry supplies and people between Earth and the space station is the Boeing Corporation. But their latest launch on December 20, 2019, failed to reach its destination due to a snafu involving the spacecraft's internal clock. The Boeing's engine fired incorrectly and used up so much of its fuel that it couldn't reach its destination. It did orbit the Earth 33 times and made a successful landing back on dry land with parachutes. That's a good thing. But it's really bad that it couldn't reach the space station. Boeing is already in trouble due to two fatal crashes involving its 737 MAX jetliners in 2018. So it'll be interesting to see how things go for Boeing and space travel in general in the coming year. If you want to hear more about the competition between these two companies, SpaceX and Boeing, listen to our episode of December 31st, 2018. It was all about the future of space travel. Well, there you go. We've now covered 38 of the top 50 science stories of 2019, and our half hour is already up. But don't lose patience. Hang on with us. Until next week, when we will finish reviewing this amazing lineup of scientific milestones this year. I've even heard that our very own bench talk poet, Dr. Leslie Moise, is at this very same moment composing some verse to commemorate these important achievements. See you next week. Well, that's the show this week. Thank you for listening to Bench Talk, The Week in Science. We think the world is a fascinating place and science is a good way to explore it. Science truly empowers all of us. If you want to learn more about the show, go to our Facebook page. Just search for Bench Talk, two words on Facebook. 
You can also email us at benchtalkradio at gmail.com. That's one word, benchtalkradio at gmail.com. Now, all of our episodes are podcasted on SoundCloud, so just visit the station's website at www.forwardradio.org and scroll down to the program archives. That's www.forwardradio.org to listen to any of our old episodes. If you live outside of the Louisville broadcast area, you can still listen to us on live stream at that same website, www.forwardradio.org. This show is broadcast on WFMP LP 106.5 FM every Monday at 7.30 p.m. That's Eastern Time. 11.30 a.m. every Tuesday and 7.30 a.m. every Wednesday. Thank you for listening to WFMP LP 106.5 FM, your grassroots, volunteer-run, listener-supported community radio station in Louisville, Kentucky where there is still a little room for evidence-based rational analysis. Thank you.